Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Mr. Dan Salmon here. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka, so thanks for tuning in. Tonight, how long do you leave an SMS unanswered? Are you sending all the wrong signals when you're online dating? We check in with researcher Kate Minnell on messaging etiquette. She might not cover exactly those things, but I'm sure we'll be peppering her with questions about all the different sorts of um, bits of friction we have with our online messaging services. Then, as the coronavirus continues to affect health around the world, we're going to talk about where to go to make sense of um, some of the news and also some strategies for people who have the opportunity to work from home. Dan, is that potentially on the cards for you? Absolutely. Um, We've got uh, various uh, contingency plans that are being put into place at my workplace. Um, We can go into it a little bit further later in the show, I think. let's do that. Let's do that. So what's happening in news this week? Well, in news that isn't related to COVID-19, and it does feel like that is all the news, uh, the Australian government is... uh, Doing a very interesting thing. in Now, um, the article that I'm quoting here is from Mashable. It says that they're suing Facebook. I don't think they're necessarily suing Facebook. I think they're prosecuting Facebook um, under the... Uh... I love it. Look <laughs> at you taking editorial control. Well, look, I don't think you can sue someone for breaking the law, which is what Facebook did in... Two th- or what, what um, uh, the federal government is, is uh, alleging. alleging that Facebook <laughs> did in 2014 and 2015 when they uh, you know teamed up with a little company called Cambridge Analytica. Um, and uh, providing, or uh, providing in providing user data for one of the uh, Facebook apps. This is your digital life. Now, this is sort of something that we're all a bit familiar with. We've all heard of face, uh, Cambridge Analytica. Um, essentially, anyone who gave their personal Facebook data or data to uh, this particular app, um, it got it got sent on and it got used in ways that weren't necessarily uh, in the end user license agreement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, used for political profiling. Basically, yeah. For anyone with uh, Netflix who hasn't oh. seen it yet, the great hack. Absolutely. We did mention this a few weeks ago yeah. and I've forgotten the name of the woman. Her name was Brittany Kaiser and you should absolutely look her up. Um, sorry for waiting four weeks to tell people what her name was, but I did say <laughs> that I was going to do that. And we do I'm like back. to clean up afterwards. We do. You know, you've got to cl- uh, tie up the loose ends. But... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, it's been one of those years. Um, so, so basically the Australian government is uh, prosecuting Facebook uh, for the breaches of uh, the data of three, approximately 311,127 Australian citizens. Now, that um, is, uh, it's, it is a, a finable offence and the fine is somewhere in the order of uh, $1.3 million, I think, Australian dollars. So uh, if it was to be a successful prosecution, the damages may reach uh, $529 billion Australian dollars, which is more than the Australian government takes in revenue each year. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting escalation from the original figure because the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner claims only 53 people in Australia downloaded the This Is Your Digital Life app that was part of, you know, the whole Facebook crossover data breach. So really, it's it's a massive 
escalation of um, cases. And I think that they're probably counting multiple cases of um, exploits against those people, each yeah, of those users. Absolutely. And, but and it, just, it just starts to add up and add up. Definitely. And one, But, I mean, one of the, the features of this, this is your digital life, uh, the sort of the license agreement was that anyone who signed up to it opened up all of their connections to that. So, yes, that's so, right. The so network effect. The network effect yeah. meant that, you know, maybe 53 people, uh, you know, signed up, but the, the, the networks of those 53 people. Oh, my gosh. Uh, ended up being 311,000. You're bringing 000. back the horror all over again, Oh, Dan. man, and I've only just got through the therapy. Look, it's very interesting <laughs> that, that it takes so long to um, to chase up uh, this sort of thing after a breach. It does, and, and it wor- it's worrying that, you know, not only uh, is, you know, legislation and law lagging behind in keeping up with new stuff, then they're also lagging behind in following up with stuff that's four or five years old. So I, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to see what happens in the future. I don't think well, they're going to be granted yeah, it's, millions of dollars. It's, it's interesting to see that um, the company's already agreed to pay $5 billion um, of fines to the US government last year mm. and was hit with a half a million pound fine from the UK in 2018. Paltry, to be honest. But, but it also seems like we've been slow off the mark mm. to, to get a, a claim in. Well, uh, it's possible that, you know, the uh, Australian Information Commissioner was, you know, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's before they uh, launched proceedings. Yeah. Or, or, it, maybe or maybe it's... they've just got less regulatory sort of things to jump through. True. Or maybe the Australian court system is as slow as everyone thinks it is. Lots of maybes there and not a lot of reporting, I've got to say. This is true. But do do have a look at the Mashable article on that. Hey, another interesting piece of uh, news that came up, I think often it's easy for people to joke about Elon Musk, but really... <laughs> it's so easy to joke. Sorry. That's not helpful. <laughs> it is not helpful. However, um, there is a reason why he's in the news so much, and part of that is because of some of the amazing work going on at Tesla. Now, we have occasionally talked about some uh, troubled stories of of people who found it very frustrating um, working within his factories and and sort of saying that, you know, the development line, it's not what they're used to and it's it's quite different and they've been quite critical of that. But um, in the Nikkei Asian Review, uh, there's a very interesting article about how some Japanese um, automotive workers um, did a breakdown of a Tesla um, in the sense, in the in the explanation of like a breakdown being like a tech breakdown, like so when so you take you, a mobile yeah. phone and you pull it apart to see all the pieces and how it's working and what's gone on behind the scenes so of the technology. Exactly. So they've done this but with a car. So Which they've, they've done it on – it would have been um, – Quite, it would make some people cry with the wait times to, to get some of these cars. So the, the one they've done it on is the Model 3. So it's the most affordable one in the lineup of these electric vehicles and it starts about $33,000 US. Now what they said they discovered during this breakdown was just how far ahead they thought Tesla were. And it wasn't full of um, hyperbole. It was they're probably six years ahead of where we are, even though we were looking at the same roadmap. And then they're starting to think of why that is so. And what they've basically broken it down to is that lots of the different components which help the car work and that you would normally um, commonly have from different supply chains, different companies would be manufacturing, specialising just in that particular component, um, had been made in-house by Tesla were Tesla branded. Mm. It meant that they had complete supply chain control 
And when these um, Japanese automotive makers were comparing the ability to, to innovate, they were saying, wow, we're actually being held back by our um, relationships with our supply chains, our loyalty, the fact that we've got employees dependent on that, and the pace of change is necessarily slower. Um, and it wasn't necessarily being critical of that, but it was also just saying, gosh, this is a massive challenge to competition. Uh, and that the, the sort of electronic platform with a computer at its core um, able to handle really heavy data loads, which is moving to their success in the uh, automotive driving capability mm. in the Tesla, yeah. was something that these other companies were really struggling to to move forward on. Absolutely. And, and I think it's it's an interesting idea, this idea of building the whole thing in-house. Um, you know, you you look at most, even, even most kind of, you know, technology, you look at Apple, they outsource a lot of their stuff to other companies, particularly in sort of the Asian Pacific region, and the parts come from somewhere else. So that's that's not, it makes things scalable a lot more simply. If you're, if you're able to kind of go to a partic- particular company that specialises in a particular chip and they can do all of it, and then that's it. And also when there's a mistake, they can say, we need you to change this and they can stop that production immediately, you know, yeah, Absolutely. they're shortening the, the time they're taught, yeah, and for it's, every little decision. And and, and it's, I suppose that kind of explains in, in part why the Tesla takes has, hasn't, I suppose, scaled as quickly as people are, pe- are perhaps anticipating it to because, you know, they, everything is made in-house. So in order to roll out X hundred thousand dollars or X hundred thousand cars a year, they would need to actually expand their in their in-house company. They have to expand all of their own supply within internal supply chains, which is inherently going to be a lot more difficult to do than just to get another company who does a, a spec. Yeah, and yet they're they're often criticised for the complexity of what they're doing, and yet I think that this actually speaks to that they have managed to reduce complexity of their supply chain mm. compared to their competitors. Absolutely. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think it'd be really interesting to open it up and just see Tesla brand on absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to, you know, Qualcomm or whatever it is, Denso. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it's a really interesting article. It came out on the 17th of Feb and it's in the Nikkei Asian Review. Uh, it's called Tesla Teardown Finds Electronics Six Years Ahead of Toyota and VW. Very well worth a read. Indeed. Triple R. Right into it with Dan and Vanessa this evening. Thanks for tuning in. When you have messages coming in on the phone, via email, in Facebook and Instagram, WhatsApp, Signal, Twitter, maybe in some dating apps, and you need to prioritise, who can you call? Well, we reached out to Kate Minnell. She's a PhD candidate with Melbourne University's School of Culture and Communication. Will you take our message, Kate? I will, yes. Thank you so much. I'll I'll respond swiftly. That would be incredible. That's a huge weight off because I've been panicking this last 10 minutes. I'm feeling so validated right now that someone (laughs) took my message immediately and without a a promo. So, look, Kate, we're really curious about this topic. What do we know about people's messaging behaviour and and in particular, you know, what did your research go into? Well, uh, I guess kind of... Broadly, something that we know is that people people struggle with kind of managing their availability to each other through messaging, right? This is a technology that that makes you really available. That's kind of the premise of it, right? You can contact anybody, anytime, anywhere. And on the flip side, you can be contacted anytime and, and anywhere. And, and while this is obviously kind of wonderful in lots of ways, it also does create real challenges for people in terms of figuring out how they how they negotiate that 
that availability because while the technology lets you be available all the time, there are there are moments where maybe you don't want to be available or there are people who you might not want to be available to in certain moments or you might be willing to have one kind of conversation and, and not to be available for another kind of conversation. And so my work was kind of looking at, at how, what do people do in those moments? How do people kind of push back against the way that the technology is trying to make you be available in order to maybe make space for themselves or to attend to other kind of priorities or or tasks. So I think as well as being a bit of a therapy session for us, (laughs) this could very well um, have uh, be an important social message for people out there because we all have different amounts of experience with messaging and probably use a range of different platforms and and tools to do messaging in. Um, Are there some standard uh, best behaviour tips that we could could talk about? Like where is the level these days? I think um, obviously the kind of research instinct in me is to say that, you know, I looked at at kind of particular particular people in particular contexts. So I looked at at young adults, 18 to 30, and particularly in the context of kind of friendship. So the the kind of things that I'm talking about, just so we're kind of clear on, on the context. But I guess in terms of broad um, broad kind of things to keep in mind that, that came out of the conversations that I had with people, things like be aware that you might be running on assumptions about what someone's messaging behaviour means and their kind of patterns of, of response or changes in those patterns. And and just be careful around those assumptions. Obviously, there are cases where where it's quite clear, and and you should you know if someone's not messaging you back, don't keep messaging them. They they don't want to be your friend. You you can make that assumption, I think, quite confidently. But in other cases, it, I think it's kind of it's maybe worth checking in if you're assuming that something means something. If you're assuming that a particular kind of delay has a particular meaning, there might be cases where it's worth just double checking because. In the the interviews that I did with participants, there were quite a few cases where people found out that they were running on assumptions that were wrong, <laughs> and actually had quite quite kind of significant impacts for for their friendship. So wow. yeah, I think I've had them. that situation where you know a parent has been messaging, um, and. I have not been receiving those messages because it's on a platform that I just do not message on. And then there's been a a bit of a conversation about, well, you know, are you ever going to respond to my messaging you? And I'm like, what messages? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, maybe maybe the way that someone's responding – isn't actually about you. Maybe it's about their relationship to their phone. Mm. Maybe they've decided that they want to use their phone less. And so the consequence of that is that they're also then less available to people through their phone. Absolutely. And I, I, that's happened with a few of my friends where they've like made a conscious effort to be less on their phone and then you see it as a reflection on yourself. <laughs> You're like, no, hold on. They've, yeah. like, you've got to kind of check yourself a little bit. Everyone in the in the combined WhatsApp group is going, what's happened with them? Are they okay? Has anyone seen them? Absolutely. <laughs> now, one thing I did want to think uh, ask you about, Kate, was – um, so early on, when we were talking about early text messaging, it was pretty dumb technology. The, 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 yeah. the message appeared, you read it, you responded to it, it took however long it took you to respond and vice versa. These days, we've got a number of platforms that show you when someone has read the message. Read receipts. Read receipts. Uh. They are, I mean, personally, I think they're the bane of my effing existence, but like, mm-hmm. what has, did your research touch on any of that kind of stuff? Read receipts came up in every interview, often, <laughs> often many, many times, and and people had really kind of strong emotive reactions to them, similar to the one that you just had. Generally, people um, hated them when they were, you know, when they were kind of on one side, but loved them on the other side. So they loved being able to see if someone had had kind of read their message, but then they didn't really love that other people could tell if if they had 
you know. Uh, so, so people had this very kind of love-hate relationship with them. And I think it's a, it is an important thing to keep in mind that the technology isn't always really making it easier for us in a lot of ways to, to manage our availability to others and to know what the etiquette is because there is this push in the kind of design of these technologies towards greater kind of ambient awareness, I guess, mm. of other people's availability. And and the idea behind that is nice, but in reality, people actually want a lot more control mm. over over what other people know about their availability. Absolutely. And like, you know, you've some, I've, I've been in conf- so many conversations where someone is complaining about the fact that they've seen that someone's read a message and they haven't responded immediately. <laughs> so it becomes this kind of to and fro, not just I don't want people to know when I'm available, but this person mm. is available and they're not making time for me. Yeah, and I, and I think it's complex because people have different – people have really different views about it too. Like some people – some of the people who I spoke with were like, even if I accidentally open the message, I respond straight away because they know that I've seen it and it stresses me out and so I'm going to respond wow. to them. I don't want them to be like freaking out. But then other people were like, oh, people get way too caught up on read receipts. Like I don't even worry about it. It's fine. Don't, don't stress. And so – I think this is an example of where like these kind of technological changes destabilize our kind of etiquette. So it make it hard for us to develop an etiquette because it's like we didn't have read receipts at the start of text messaging and now we have them. So what does that mean for the kind of etiquette? Is it weird when you gave that example, I immediately gendered the two different views that you had there? <laughs> Which- which way? Oh, we won't go into yeah, that. Yeah, I think that says more about you than anything else. Vanessa. I wonder, did did you look into the idea of context shifting very much? Like someone messaging you on one platform, not getting the response at all, and then chasing you on another platform or following up, you know, trying to continue a discussion mm. somewhere else? Mm. Yeah, there were, there were definitely instances of that, People places where people talked about that, that someone might – might message them and then and then they couldn't you know they they didn't get hold of the person who they wanted and so they tried them on another platform or they tried them on social media or they call them I think an interesting kind of uh, I guess like observation out of that is that people often talked about how you could nag your close friends and that they would have these practices of trying to get the attention of their close friends that you could never do with someone else you know they're like hey 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 are you there are you there I've got news like the kind of pestering like um <laughs> kind of text messages but you can only do that in a really intimate context you know mm. where, where it's not going to come across as like creepy and, and weird <laughs> which it will which it will otherwise it would, absolutely. yeah 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 definitely so did you look at behavior on specific platforms or just like smsing when you were doing the research uh i i kind of was led by my participants in this in terms of what what platforms they use the most and so the platforms that they used the most were whatsapp uh facebook messenger and then sms app so whatever the kind of sms app was on the phone that they used Mm. yeah and did you um talk about i guess people um getting getting lost in messages like forgetting whether a message come in on this platform or that platform because they really have proliferated these days Mm. and even within one platform people talked about kind of losing track and forgetting to reply and and um and some people had started trying to develop systems for kind of managing that 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 flow of information so like I'll 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 mark things as not read so that I know that I have to go back and kind of deal with it later which I think kind of just adds to the to the like to the labor associated with messaging right the fact that it that it that it actually does take quite a lot of effort sometimes cognitively to process like well where am I up to in that conversation and who do I still need to respond to and and I think that's maybe sometimes 
contributes to these feelings of like fatigue that we can have around messaging and and um yeah can, can make us want to maybe just put off that text message <laughs> <remind> <laughs> that text message for another day well i guess we've heard about messaging as a younger generation's preference over the cold call like a phone call particularly if they didn't know who was calling um i grew up at a time where i still remember people just calling the landline at your house and your parents telling you to go answer that because they were pushing off that burden to you and you were then able to field calls for them. Um, has, has that changed a bit, you know, now that people are starting to experience a bit more um, stress with, you know, and work, the idea of work with dealing with messaging? Do you mean has it changed that now we take, that now we're happy to take calls or? Yeah, I wonder if you're seeing any, any behaviour change there. People still hate calls. Yeah, they do, don't <laughs> they? Yeah. No one will call for a pizza these days. Yeah, there, there were a few. I was kind of heartened to find that there were some stories where people would say, yeah, and, and I, like, we, I have a regular phone call with this friend and we'll, we know we'll, we'll chat on the phone for two hours, which to me felt very nostalgic, a very nostalgic kind of form of social interaction. But but on the whole, yeah, people were pretty avoidant about about calling they didn't they didn't kind of love it it felt too intrusive I think and then my I guess my follow-on question is WhatsApp does let you record audio Mm -hmm. and I know that culturally not very many Aussies record audio there Mm -hmm. but I see a lot of my Asian pals do and you know is that a phenomenon that you saw at all yeah there was actually a bit I so when I recruited participants the requirements were that that they were 18 to 30 that um that they lived in Melbourne at the time and, and that they kind of used messaging and and as part of that I ended up getting quite a few international students and also quite a few um kind of people of, of Southeast Asian nationality and so they yeah to your point um used voice messaging quite a bit whereas the kind of white Aussie people didn't so much and they talked about the value of it being like that you can particularly around humor that you can you can you can kind of tell a joke a lot easier or or have banter a lot easier through through so a it's voice tone message. Mm. yeah yeah because yeah. misinterpreting tone in text messages like number one pratfall of like how does this person hate me or not that's really interesting because i had thought maybe it was just down to the limitations of phones handling Asian character sets, you know, and how inconvenient it is to type a lot of that stuff. And so, you know, people, you know, particularly on Weibo and whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's so much easier to just send tiny little snippets of sound. And they won't do a long, you know, hey, diary, like a whole journal piece to, to audio. It will be pretty snappy little back and forths. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, I guess, that it hasn't maybe become more widely popular or popular, you know, across kind of wider wider kind of cohorts because it does it does deal do away with a lot of what we find frustrating about about messaging (laughs) but it also requires us to to confront our like fear of having to talk into the phone so yeah wow Mm. wow did you did you find that there was a difference between people's attitudes towards sending or receiving messages at all um dan's worried about how much he spams his mates more or less (laughs) I guess people felt like there was more, there was a lot more kind of tension and, and maybe difficulty, complexity when you were the receiver than when you were the sender. It's a little bit simpler to be the sender. There is angst in some circumstances in terms of whether someone replies or how they re- reply, but 
but but when you're on the receiving end, um, I think sometimes people felt that there was a bit more complexity. That said, there's also kind of more power, right? And and people actually talked about this in very like explicit terms. That that one one participant in particular who was like, you know, when you're when you're on the receiving end, like you hold the power <laughs> in order to determine how quickly you will respond and 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 the kind of signals that that that, that sends. I love that. That is, that's, yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of recognizing that, not, not, not it's that not dynamic. Over, that dynamic. It's, yeah. it's not necessarily an overt thing, but like, oh yeah, you know, that person can wait. Um, did you, did, <laughs> did you find, did you find that the intimacy of a person's relationship kind of had a factor in there at all? Yeah, it did, and in, in lots of really interesting ways, actually. One way was like. It's really hard to be unavailable now. That's a really fraught thing to be unavailable. It's kind of a problem you have to manage. But people often f- were able to do it in, in intimate relationships. It was like a sign of intimacy that you were okay with not responding to each other, basically, right? So people had these kind of forms of, of, of really intimate friendships where they had these kind of mutual understandings about each other's unavailability about when they wouldn't be available that it was okay to respond slowly and I think that's an interesting kind of dynamic Ah, right that in this context where we're so connected to not be connected is actually like a a sign of something like precious well I love what that says about trust as well and just and just knowing that some other relationships need a bit more you know feeding they need a bit more grooming and maintenance and what have you but this is there's 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 trust here and you know that I'll get back to you eventually. And yeah, you're not going to misunderstand the, mm. the delay or, or I'm so familiar with your schedule that I know yeah. that you're not <laughs> responding to me because you're at your parents' house because that's always what you do on that's a Saturday. Adorable. Or like people, yeah, they just had these kind of really intimate mutual understandings about about kind of what it what it meant to be unavailable and, and that made it okay. So, Kate, when you set off on this research, you know, did you have a hypothesis you wanted to test in particular or was it more exploratory? A little bit of both. I guess I guess the kind of hypothesis was that people have lots of ways of dealing with being unavailable, right? A lot of the kind of literature around mobile communication and young people and a lot of the popular discourses in this area too talk about how connected people are, right? The fact that young people are always on their phones, they're always messaging their friends, they're so connected. And so I guess my kind of hypothesis coming into it was like, well, no, actually people have the ability to be constantly in contact, but they're always finding ways to kind of navigate to kind of navigate that and to, to they're finding little ways to kind of push back. I guess that was the hypothesis. But then in terms of what that looked like, that was quite kind of exploratory. I, I wasn't looking for particular things. I just talked to a whole bunch of people and, and found out what they did. Did you find out anything about group behaviour in things like WhatsApp? Because I think that's a really fascinating type of dynamic. Yeah, group, group chats are, group chats are, are, are such an interesting development in messaging. I think... They're, they're kind of quite a wonderful space, really. In some ways, I think, I was reading something the other day, an article in, like, Man Repeller or something, talking about how they're, they're actually, like, the best, they're kind of the best thing about our phones now is group chats. So these these spaces that you have with, particularly group chats with friends, right? They're obviously annoying group chats. I'm not <laughs> talking about the ones where you're trying to organise, like, the birthday present. <laughs> but but the group chat with your with your friends, that kind of intimate space where it's really where it's really kind of easy. And I think part of why it's easy is because 
a lot of the availability tensions that we have in one-on-one messaging don't really exist in group messaging. And, and participants talked about this a lot. You know, in a group, there's less obligation. There's other people there who can do who can carry the conversation if I can't. And so maybe that's part of why we, we have such fondness around group messaging is because it doesn't come with this kind of obligation of like, I have to respond, I don't really feel like it, or I don't know how to, or... Or, or, or perhaps, like, you know, the, the excitement of being the person who gets the, the joke in first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, there's spaces where, where there's a lot of where there's a lot of humour. And, I mean, humour is important to, to kind of group behaviour, right? It's a way, that, it's a way that, that people develop kind of in-group solidarity, to use a very kind of sociological term, um, through, through, through having a shared, a shared sense of humour. And so I think that's why you see so much of that in, in, in group chats. Hmm. Did you um, hit any chat about like the limits to those group chats, like maybe a number limit over over what becomes untenable and, and where people can't hack it anymore or can't keep track? People didn't so much specify a specific a specific kind of number, but there was a lot of talk about the fact that it becomes unwieldy, right? If it's too large, particularly around kind of notifications. Um, that it becomes really that it becomes really big and really kind of unwieldy and and kind of difficult to manage and so there was a sort of sweet spot right you wanted enough people um, but but not too many it is pretty organic right you do see and then and then there'll be another split off because you need to organize the back it. channel yeah that's it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and a lot of interesting dynamics around how groups get made or, or how changes in the in group membership happens as mm. well so like one participant um, had a story of, of quite a tumultuous group chat where there was a lot of kind of conflict and people being booted out and people being brought back in. And it's interesting to think about how that how that you know maybe does or doesn't map on to to, to a friendship group, right? Like, yeah. some you might have a friendship group where someone's someone is excluded from the group chat, but maybe it's because you care about them and you don't want to spam them with notifications. And this is a group chat for people who who. Uh, are at the same university and so your mate at the other university they're not in the group chat it's not because you don't love them you you love them so much that you don't want to spam them with with notifications and so yeah. I think there's, there's these kind of interesting like issues of inclusion and exclusion and when is when is inclusion a sign of of inclusion and when is exclusion actually a sign that you're also included in the in the wider group this is way more complex than uh than I hoped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm loving it, though. It is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's the new forums, I think, you know, for a lot of people who were first wave internet and maybe second wave like me. Yeah, their forums are a really big part of life, but also the organic ways that they would subdivide into different levels of interests and then go into back channels for actual social events and things. It's pretty similar. Did you come across any really interesting techniques to help people manage these sorts of things or any sorts of unfriendly behaviour management? Uh, I guess in terms of like the kind of core of what I was looking at, which is which is how people kind of manage their, their availability, mm. the, there were kind of three, I guess, broad categories of, of practices that people use. There's kind of technical practices, so so maybe changing things on your on your phone, changing your notification settings, um, putting group chats on mute if they're making too many notifications. <laughs> but even things to do physically with your phone, you know, t- turning your phone down or putting it in another room when you need when you need a bit of space or time. And then the, a kind of second set of practices around around delay and the use of kind of time as a way of, of managing availability. So maybe strategically responding faster or slower in certain circumstances. And then a third set that I look at around around language, around actually the written content of a message. What do you say? 
what are the what are the the different kind of tactics that we have around the content of a message to manage our availability. And I think the, the kind of big and best example there is lying, which <laughs> which we do a lot in order to manage our availability, right? That's Yeah, it's the classic white lie scenario, really. It's the classic white lie scenario, yeah. And messaging is perfect for it because you don't know whether – you know, whether I am where I say where I am or, or whether I actually didn't get your message because I was sleeping or, you know. So we should be grateful that FaceTiming hasn't taken off too badly here. Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kate, I think we could hear about this forever. Thank you so much, though, for sharing um, some of the initial findings of your research and um, all the best with uh, getting that in under the line. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Thanks heaps. We've been speaking with Kate Minnell about etiquette around uh, messaging. She's from Melbourne University. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Hey, um... Another thing that we're unfortunately reflecting on too often these days is uh, COVID-19. So the coronavirus, uh, we do not want to add to any sensationalist um, coverage of that. And there's a whole range of research that people can access from credible platforms like The Conversation. Uh, We're not a health show, so we're not uh, equipped to talk about those sort of things. But what we did want to uh, touch on is some of the conferences that have been cancelled in the tech space we know that things have been cancelled all across the board. We heard about Dark Mofo today. We just wanted to call out that um, things like the Mobile World Congress, South by Southwest, Facebook's F8 and Google's IO have all been cancelled so far. Um, Apple's a Worldwide Developer Conference is a little further um, in the future, but I'm sure it's in question. So it's having a really big financial effect on at least the tech sector. Um, for example, the first one, Mobile World Congress, is worth about 500 million euro to Barcelona. Uh, South by Southwest regularly gets 400,000 attendees um, across not just the interactive but also the film and music um, and other streams. So you can imagine the the uh, big impact it's having on the um, incidental sort of things as well. So it's not just the the events themselves, but it's that the bars and restaurants and hotels and, you know, car share companies and what have you are all utilised more heavily by those sort of events. So it's it's pretty significant. Um, it does mean I saw someone joke about the fact that, oh, gosh, our American counterparts now know what it's like to not be able to attend every one of these tech events. <laughs> I thought that was, that was a, very, uh, a very astute take on that. But we are thinking about how can we connect more virtually. Maze, one of our amazing contributors on the show, was speaking about China's response to this uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and, saying, and saying that it was great how they had – uh, virtual music concerts, for example, to help keep people entertained while they're in isolation. And, of course, we're seeing this sort of response to um, conference events as well. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of conferencing, um, one thing that we're sort of uh, starting to see, particularly in Australia uh, in the last day or two, is, um, uh, I suppose, measures being put in place in workplaces for uh, either working remotely, working from home or, or conferencing online. Yeah. So, um, we, we're really conscious that, that this is not an option that's available to everyone. Um, but uh, as people who work more on the IT side of things, lots of white-collar workers, uh, already there is 
quite a, a big trend for people to work remotely as it is. Mm. Uh, but it is interesting to see this crop up as a as a situation management thing. Definitely. So I, I suppose if with that in mind, you know, if you do work in a workplace, and I, I've I've started doing this myself, if you work in a workplace that has the facilities for, um, you know, te- teleconferencing or working remotely, but you have colleagues that aren't necessarily uh, up to speed or au fait with that kind of thing, it might be worthwhile, uh, you know, taking some time. So tomorrow I'm bringing all my colleagues together for about 15 minutes just to kind of go through the various video conferencing systems, get us, uh, get us, I suppose, a, a, a strategy in place so that if we at some point are required to work from home, then we still can be as connected as possible. Yeah, so we wanted to cover that tonight with you as well, rather than um, just with our colleagues. I think we're also thinking about keeping in touch with family and friends remotely. Sometimes we might be healthy, but we might be concerned about, um, you know, being around people who are a bit more vulnerable than us. Absolutely. And so... Having more more check-ins, uh, maybe with the video camera out, you know, like maybe FaceTiming or or using the video capabilities of other meeting tools is the right time to try that with with family and friends. Absolutely, you know, yeah. peep, peep, um, you know, have a have a chat on the phone with you know your parents, your grandparents who aren't using these technologies but they have them, and and see yeah. if they'd be willing to give it a try. And maybe sit down with it in front of you, and you know, while you're reading the newspaper and. You know, yell across when you read something that's outrageous, like you normally would do if you were sitting around on an afternoon reading a newspaper. And, <laughs> Absolutely, know. and and if you are thinking of, um, you know, doing the teleconferencing, but you don't know if your workplace has it and you don't really know, uh, look on the on the uh, desktop or on on the menu for words like Zoom, uh, <laughs> Skype for Business, Join Me, Go to Meeting, uh, Google Hangouts is another one. Um, th- th- those will be your kind of go tos for work. But at home, you know. Know, you've got uh, WhatsApp video, you've got Facebook Messenger video, uh, you've got uh, if you've got an iOS device, you can do video calls through. Um, I can't remember what it's called. There's a <laughs> there's a company called Jitsi, J I T S I, that I've been using for um, like video conferencing meetings, and that's been really great. Uh, and I think establishing a, a few conventions around these things as well, because. Uh, if you're going to start using video conferencing tools with people in their homes, you want to make sure that, like, do we all agree, you know, is video okay? Don't take it to the bathroom. Or, or do we just want to do, like, video for the first five minutes while we're all saying hello and smiling at each other and then switch it off to save bandwidth so we get a better call quality? Or, you know, what are your conventions? Maybe mm. establish those beforehand. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good idea. To, uh, well, it's a good opportunity to get some long-term practices in place and kind yeah. of try out some things. I think we should also emphasise that in this space, not everything needs to be a meeting. Now's some time to get a bit more agile and collaborative in your documents. Oh, oh look you at these use words. those words. But less FaceTime, maybe more time using workflow management tools or collaboration tools, virtual whiteboards. So things in the project management tool space might be uh, things like Slack and Trello or Atlassian have, say, Jira that's particularly good for software development or maybe Confluence if you're into more collaborative working. Obviously, there's the entire Google suite, which can be quite good, particularly if you're, you know, delaying that holiday that you're going to go on with family or friends and you, you want to still keep the excitement alive and it's like, right, I'm starting a Google Sheet. We're going to put, you know, all of our amazing ideas for a holiday in an indeterminate, like an indeterminate time in the future. Absolutely, <laughs> in the year. <laughs> and you know, if you've if you've got, you know, the more uh, a ritual with you with your colleagues, you know, you go for your morning coffee or you have your morning cup yes. of tea. You can still have that cup of tea. Just do it on Skype. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think we're going to see some very strange behaviours if everything we encourage here um, comes to fruition. But I don't know. I'm just throwing some stuff out I think out it's kind of cute. But in a similar vein, can you go for a walk during that meeting, especially if it's one where you have to listen more than talk? Because mm. you don't want too much of that wind blowing over the mic sock thing. That's, this is true. That's very unpleasant. But if you can find a, a little nook... You know, a park bench to, to take the rest of the call on and then work in another half hour walk or something. Well, that, yeah, that, and that, that is the other thing. If you are working from home, do make sure to get outside and, um, you know, get some fresh air. Don't stay inside the entire time. Get around the block. Get around the block. You may need to give other people a wide berth. We're not necessarily saying you should, but. Yeah, if you... don't glare at anyone, though. No, don't, don't. You be, be friendly. And mm. for the love I had someone of... glare at me on the tram the other day, and I'm like, is it because I'm Asian? I'm not wearing a mask oh, or anything. Man, that's very, not cool. You know, a sustained. 10 minute kind of focused glare. <sighs> it was a little, uh, uh, yeah, a little discombobulated. That, 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 that annoys me. <laughs> so um, be kind to people out there. I know people. people are feeling a little scared. Absolutely. And, and, you know, don't necessarily steal the toilet paper from the office desk. Please don't, <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. That's not cool. Yeah. So a little bit of home self care. Think about your ergonomics. Are you, if you're in a position to stand sometimes and sit other times, then how can you make that really good for your back? And, mm-hmm. You know, how can you work in some stretches? Yeah, and... don't don't work with your laptop on your coffee table, for example. Like I do that all the time. Yeah, don't. I know. But yes, but I don't. Know. <laughs> but don't. I'm, I'm trying to help you here. All right, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, plan some healthy meals. You know, take advantage of having your kitchen right there. Mm, and and if you are planning on you know slacking off a little bit, don't use the video conferencing when you're doing it. Don't slack <laughs> off. Like, let's make this good for everybody. Flexible working. Um, you know, requires trust. Absolutely. So I think there's a real opportunity there to go, wow, I can actually knock off at knock-off time and make the most of that commute. But let's remember that often a commute is our wind-down time. So then what do we replace that with? How do we transition out of work mode into social, you know, free time kind of mode? Absolutely. You definitely need to still have that demarcation between uh, what is home and what is work. And when you are working from home, it can be a little bit difficult. I feel like it doesn't need to be said, but don't stay in pyjamas all day. Yeah, I'm, well, not, I'm not a huge pyjama fan I, anyway, so I, that would I never happen. I stay in pyjamas all day. No, Dan, all right. Dan, we, but, we're but making a deal here. Yeah, okay. I'll stop sitting at my coffee table. If I have a shower and get dressed in the morning? That's right. All, all right, right, deal. Done. Excellent. I would shake your hand, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're touching elbows right now. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. For the last little bit of bite into it with Dan and Vanessa this evening, great to have you with us. I hope there's still a bit of residual warmth out there. It was a lovely day. It was. Hey, a big thank you to this evening's guest, Kate Minnell, um, PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. Um, Thank you to our podcaster, Izan Saif, who's been beavering away on all of our files, and to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, who's always chasing amazing stories for us to chase up. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.